politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, hey, that's me. Against their better judgment, they let me through the door one more day this week. And so here we are. What a thrill to be with you for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. We've got what I promise you will be a fascinating radio program this afternoon, an interview with a fellow I've talked to half a dozen times over the last 35, maybe 40 years, and uh, he's still at it, one of America's leading researchers on consciousness, and he's going to tell us about his history and his experiments with remote viewing and the implications that the study of remote viewing by scientists and researchers all over the world has on the way you look at life and the formation of reality. You know, at the beginning of every single program, there's an introduction that says, this show, this Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK, is a program about consciousness. And we describe it as the fundamental nature of reality. Indeed, a universal matrix or network, uh, a, a unified field of energy that's aware of itself that causes material reality. So stay tuned for that interview. We've got that. And of course, fundraising. We're in the February winter fund drive. And so we want to open the program by telling you that this is your opportunity to step up and be a sustainer and a supporter of this fine radio station and its mission. And do so at a time that's, I, I can't imagine any other time in the past when it's been more critical. And it's true, I began volunteering for this radio station 30 years ago. And we've always had to come to you and say, we're desperate, we need money to sustain this radio station, to support the radio station. We've got a transmitter on top of Mount Wilson that's blasting 110,000 watts 24 hours a day. And we have a small staff of people that have to be here every single day. And in order to do that, they need to get paid. The bulk of us are volunteers. We donate our money and our time and our efforts and our energy, as do the guests. We don't pay guests to be on KPFK. They're happy to do it. They're proud to, to do it. So what can you do as a listener to be part of that community? You can serve what serves you. That's the way I like to say it. So whether you've got 25 bucks or 2500 give us a call at 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK. we got folks in the phone room right now that'll be happy to take your contribution, your donation, your pledge. And of course, there are premiums. There's uh, coffee mugs and tote bags and scores and scores of other little goodies that you can inquire about. But I'm not going to emphasize those because if you just donate the money, 
and say, I want every cent to go to the maintenance of this radio station. Keep your coffee mug, keep your tote bags. Then you're really maximizing your contribution. And so do that now. Do it right away. And then you can settle in and sit back and listen to this amazing interview. 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK. A great guest, a fellow I've interviewed before going, gee, all the way back to the mid-1980s, I think. And he's been on KPFK with us as well. He's written a number of books and uh, on a, actually on a variety of topics. But we want to focus in today, no pun intended, on remote viewing, which is really, I think, the core of his work. Stefan Schwartz, my guest on KPFK. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm better and better, and uh, nice to see you again yes. and hear from you. And uh, What have you been up to? You still working as hard as ever on your remote viewing research? Well, you know, I publish in eight different disciplines. So, I, you know, I just keep beavering away. I started writing novels a few years ago in order to put stuff about consciousness into novels because I discovered that's what younger people mostly read. They don't read nonfiction. But, uh, yeah, I keep writing nonfiction books. I just have a new one out, Is Consciousness Primary? And, of course, my one on social transition, uh, The Eight Laws of Change, and then all the remote viewing books and then the novels. And, I don't know, hundreds of papers. Take your pick. You're like me. You like to be busy, right? Yes. I'm, I don't do well just sitting around. <laughs> First thing I think of when I wake up in the morning is this field of awareness and uh, consciousness. And it is so fascinating and always has been. There was something in me for me back in the 70s when I started meditating when I learned about a program called Silva Mind Control. Oh, yes. And also my psychedelic experiences, they opened something in me in terms of what was possible. And instead of dismissing a lot of phenomenal experiences and intuitive epiphanies, if I can say that, or, or, or revelations, I started to consider that maybe these were valid experiences and Gosh, one thing led to another. What always fascinated me about your work was the psychic archaeology material. And uh, there was a researcher at UCLA, I believe, a Dr. Caragula. Oh, yeah, Shanika Caragula. Yeah, she was doing similar work. But you went out of the lab into the field and really made it happen. Why don't you? Give us a thumbnail of that story. I uh, woke up when I was 20, just not just shy of 24 years old. This is 1964. And um, uh, I, I walked away from my life. I had worked for National Geographic writing documentaries for television. And I had a series of experiences that that made me realize there was something else going on that I didn't understand, and I went down. Uh, I ended up going down to Virginia Beach and was introduced to the Edgar Casey material through a weird set of synchronicities. The whole thing was very odd. But in any case, I decided 
that I would start reading the Edgar Casey readings, which are, in a sense, the largest body of remote viewing documented research in the world. And I did. I started at the very first reading, and I read all the way through to the last. There were about 15,000 of them. It took me about five years. And somewhere about two and a half, three years into that, I decided I, I didn't know anybody in parapsychology. I decided that I would read the parapsychological literature because I wanted to know what science had to say about all this. And so I read every scientific journal in parapsychology from the beginning to at then about 1966. And in 1968, I decided to start doing research be experimental, uh, begin doing experiments myself. And I had learned from the Casey material that all the senses report, that is, people could tell you what things smell like or sound like or look like. And I started what I originally called distant viewing. Terrible term. So is remote viewing, by the way. Neither one of them are correct because it has nothing to do with viewing and it has nothing to do with space. But we didn't know that in those days. Anyway, I started doing this, um, and because I had been interested in come out of an anthropological orientation, at that time, one of the big issues going on in archaeology was where to look. I mean, that was the, the, the difficulty that the field faced. Most of their finds were serendipitous. That is, a farmer plowing in a field would discover a tomb or a road crew building a new highway would dig up a temple, and um, they wanted to know, well, can't we improve that now, of course, with side-scan sonar and proton precession magnetometer and ground-penetrating radar? It's gotten much different than it was then. But in any case, from my point of view, as an experimentalist in consciousness, which is what I was interested in, I was never interested in proving doesn't exist because if I could do the experiments I wanted to do, it had to exist. What I wanted to know was, how does it work? How can you improve it and, and make it operate more easily and more effectively? And what is it telling us about who we are as human beings and our place in the matrix of consciousness? So those were the big questions that I was interested in. Could you do anything of practical utility? I left that one out. And archaeology answered all of those because everybody was agreed that something existed, like Cleopatra's Palace or the Lighthouse of Pharos, but they also agreed they didn't know where it was and uh, they couldn't find it. So it was perfect from my point of view. It was a triple-blind experiment. If somebody could locate uh, an archaeological site that other people had been looking for and couldn't find, and not only locate it, but describe what you'd find when you got there, well, then you had a pure triple-blind experiment that could not be explained away in any other way. I was never interested, I mean, I certainly did a lot of them, but I was never really focused or interested in doing experiments that just had statistical outcomes. Now, I wanted to know, could you do something practical with it? And archaeology was perfect. And so the first thing that I I ever did was the Talking Idol of Ixchel. I went out to Arizona to write what became the Secret Vaults of Time, which was all the use of, of remote perception and non-local perception prior to my getting involved. 
and I met a young archaeologist who was looking for the talking idol of Ixchel, which is uh, the talking Mayan idol. And, um, and so we did an experiment, and I developed, because I had been in government and had been involved with the intelligence community, and also I'd been an investigative reporter for newspapers, I had decided from the beginning that I wouldn't use a single viewer, that I would use multiple viewers for the same reason that if you had an explosion that suddenly occurred outside of where you are now, and you ran outside and saw a group of people looking at a hole in the ground, I mean, what would you do? You'd go and you'd take them one at a time and take them off by themselves and say, what did you see? And then take the next one off by himself and herself and say, what did you see? And so that was the idea. It was straight out of the intelligence community. And also, because I had been um, oriented in that kind of direction through investigative reporting, I knew that everybody didn't see everything, and everything they saw they didn't report accurately. But when you could get a number of people that would report the same thing, where there was a consensus, it was probably right. I got offered a fellowship out in Los Angeles, the Philosophical Research, which at that time was headed by a man named Manley Hall and another guy named Henry Drake. And I went out there and uh, was the senior fellow for a number of years. And when I had been involved with the government as the special assistant to chief of naval operations, I had a friend who was the head of the CIA, and he had begun sending me papers from a epidemiologist named Leonid Vasiliev, who had been asked by the Soviet Politburo, the head of the, of the government in, in Russia, they wanted to know, was non-local consciousness electromagnetic in nature? And that was also a big issue in the United States. And in 1972, a, a man named Michael Persinger at Laurentia University up in Canada had published a paper in which he said it was probably electromagnetic and it was probably ELF, that's uh, 3 to 300 hertz. At the same time, I was reading these Vasiliev papers and he was putting people down into caves and down into mine shafts and putting them in Faraday cages. That's a shielding for electromagnetic radiation. And uh, he would put people down in caves in the Faraday cages or down in, in mine shafts. And he would ask them to do non-local perception tasks. And he discovered that uh, he, would, he literally was a very good researcher he shielded everything in the electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum except ELF, this one very particular part. And he published these papers, and my friend who had been the head of this, or was the head of the CIA, was sending me these papers. And I was reading them, and that and the Persinger thing. Vasiliev said, well, the only way you could really eliminate ELF would be to go put somebody in a submarine at depth. But he wasn't able to do it. He went to Admiral Gorshkov, who was the father of the Soviet Blue Water Navy. And for whatever reason, Gorshkov wouldn't let him do it. Well, let me interrupt you at this point. Sure. I seem to recall having read in the Ostrander and Schroeder book, mm -hmm. Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain, that they put a mother rabbit in a Faraday cage and the baby rabbits on the submarine halfway around the world, and as inhumane as it may be, 
they would execute the baby rabbits, note the time, and there was a sympathetic reaction in the mother rabbit, despite the Faraday cage on the other side yeah. of the world. Well, Do you recall that? Is that well, I, I not only recall it, but I spent a lot of time from between 1981 and 1991, when the Soviet Union ceased to exist, I spent a lot of time in Russia. I mean, we're talking months of a year. And I tried to track that experiment down and was not successful in doing so. So I knew uh, Sheila Ostander and, and um, Lynn Schroeder, and, and they had heard it from a man named Dubrov. But they, I never could track the paper down. So I, I, don't, I can't actually tell you whether that experiment actually happened or not. I can tell you that the American government got into doing research at SRI because they had heard that the Russians were doing it, and the Russians got into it because they had heard that somebody aboard the Nautilus submarine had carried out an experiment, and so uh, the, the Russians began a program, and then the American intelligence community got wind of what the Russians were doing, and they, who had not been doing it, then started to fund a program. That's a whole other story. But in any case, about ELF, this is actually very important. I went to Hyman Rick. I was then special assistant to chief of naval operations. I was in Washington, D.C. This was before I went out to Los Angeles. And, um, and I went to Hyman Rickover, who was the father of the American nuclear navy, all those deep ocean submarines. And I asked him if I could put somebody aboard a submarine and do this experiment to do a remote viewing experiment where I would put get sailors to describe where people were hiding. And I flew up to Groton, Connecticut with him, with John Warner, who was then Secretary of the Navy. And I explained all this to Rickover, and he listened very carefully. And, and he said, well, let me get back to you. And he called me, about, I don't know, a week or two later, and he said um, – you know, that's a really interesting experiment, but I'm not going to do it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, inevitably the media will get hold of it and they'll talk about the deep ocean submarines and we don't want to do that. I mean, most people don't even know these subs are out there. So in any case, I, th I thought it was never going to happen. But I went, then when I went to Los Angeles, uh, two friends of mine had retired from the Navy who were deep ocean specialists. And they had taken over the Institute of Marine and Coastal Studies. And I, I went out when I was interviewing for this senior fellowship at Philosophical Research. I stayed with one of them. And he said to me, you know, that crazy submarine experiment you wanted to do. And I said, oh, yes, of course. And he said, well, we have a submarine, a research submarine that's coming out to our Catalina Island facility. And we'll pay for three days. We'll let you uh, do that experiment. And so I organized an experiment where I had 11 people. First of all, I sent them a chart, a sea chart. And the question was, can you locate a previously unknown wreck on the sea floor? And can you tell me how the ship got there and what I'll find when I get to the place that you picked? And they did. They gave me very specific instructions about a particular location and a particular ship. And they told me what I would find. And it was not just things like you'd expect, you know, if I said, well, can you locate a ship? And they said, well, there's an anchor. Well, I mean, you expect an anchor. But one of the viewers, Hella Hamid, said to me, well, you're going to find a big block of granite. It's about five feet by six feet. 
and it's just this big, large, rectangular block of granite. And she drew me a little picture of it. So the, this experiment, Deep Quest, and you can go to YouTube and see the movie. I got Leonard Nimoy, Dr. Spock to narrate it. In any case, they located a specific ship, and I, uh, we found the ship, and it, we found the block, and we found everything else that they described. And later on, by doing research with a variety of disciplines, metallurgists and others, the entire reconstruction of how the ship sank and why it was there and all of that all turned out to be true. But the other thing we did was I, I had just met the SRI guys, so I asked Ingo Swan, coined the term remote viewing, and Hella Hammett if they would be the viewers, and I asked uh, Russ Targ and Hal Putoff if they would be the outbound people. And I put first Hella and then Ingo in the submarine by themselves, and their task was to describe these guys, where they were hiding somewhere in Northern California, and they were able to do it. The key part was you could not, ELF could not explain how they did it, and therefore we know that non-local consciousness and non-local perception remote viewing is not electromagnetic. <laughs> you read my mind. Of course. You've answered all the questions that I wanted to ask you, but I've got more, and I need to take a quick break and then touch a little bit sure. on this ELF. In spite of the fact you disproved it, there are implications. So we'll be right back after the short break. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. I'm Michael Benner. Stay tuned. This is Jackson Brown. I've been listening to KPFK since I was a teenager. Then and now, KPFK has been a lifeline to vital information without which we would be at the mercy of corporate media and commercial interests that control it. There are so many programs that I've listened to regularly and so many instances when I've come upon the unexpected, the unknown, and the sublime. Join me and become a member today at kpfk.org. Now more than ever before, it's essential to keep supporting KPFK and the free exchange of ideas and cultural viewpoints that foster our democracy. And the number, which is the only number I know actually by heart, 818-985-5735. KPFK. I came for inspiration. I came Stefan Schwartz is my guest, and he's the author of a number of books, some of which we've mentioned, and we will again at the end of this segment, because if you feel at all as fascinated as I do about this, you're going to want to do some follow-up on it. So these documents about the research at Stanford, Stefan, by the CIA and NSA, that was all declassified in the 90s. So if somebody wants to do the work, they can find out that the government or federal government really has been investigating what we'll call remote viewing, for lack of a better term. Clairvoyance would be another term. Out-of-body experience, astral projection. Are we just sloppy in our language? Are these all the same phenomena? Well, I would call it non-local perception personally, uh, because as far as I can see, there are basically two phenomena. Non-local perception, which is the ability to acquire objectively verifiable information that you would not have access to through normal intellectual processes. 
that is, you couldn't know it, and non-local perturbation, which is non-local consciousness affecting the structure of reality. Now, it may be that it's just a single thing. I'm just not sure. What I also believe now, this is after 50 years of doing research, is that what we're looking at is an information phenomena. For instance, with healing, people are always talking about sending healing. And uh, when you read a lot of remote viewing stuff, they talk about senders and signals and receivers. And again, it's all couched in sort of electromagnetic terms when, in fact, it's not any of those things. Healing is not about sending something. It's about linking with another person, another organism, and awakening in them their immune response. It's a kind of placebo effect. And, I mean, there's a lot of research like why I am pretty sure this is correct. That's non-local perturbation. Non-local perception is kind of like doing a Google, only the thing that is that guides it is intention. We don't know what the mechanism is. Nobody knows. I mean, the two great mystery questions are, what is consciousness? And the other one is that this appears to all be an information phenomena. And so the other question is, what is information? And as far as I know, nobody knows the answer to that. I certainly don't. And no one I know knows it, and nothing that's been published suggests. I mean, you can get all kinds of papers about how to manipulate information, but the essence, uh, for instance, you look at the reincarnation research, and people incarnate with scar tissue or birthmarks where they experience wounds in a previous life. Where is that information when they're physically dead? And when a remote viewer goes back to locate something that no one has seen for a thousand years, where is that information? And the answer, I think, is that it's not anywhere. It is part of the informational structure and that reality. You know, in, in 1931, Max Planck was interviewed, father of quantum mechanics, was interviewed by the Observer mag, a newspaper, which is one of the big newspapers in, in England. And he didn't give a lot of interviews. And so they went up to him, the reporter, and said, my, you know, my editor sent me to ask you this question. You and Einstein are the most famous scientists in the world. What have you learned? And I don't, as I, you know, I don't know what they thought he was going to say, but I think they were pretty dumbfounded by what he did say. Plunk thought about it for a minute and responded, well, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. Space-time arises from consciousness not consciousness from space-time. Consciousness is the fundamental. Yeah. We say that in the intro to this radio program every week. I want to use what you've just said to finally dispatch this electromagnetic allegory. Okay. Because as an allegory, there are parallels to it, but it seems what we're ultimately talking about stands outside of space and time. Yes. And when we talk about local or non-local, we have to somehow think outside of this set of dimensions because we don't see any evidence that this awareness that we're calling remote viewing or clairvoyance dissipates through space the way a regular electromagnetic wave would. Exactly. 
And further, in quantum physics, there's this idea of entanglement where distance plays no factor whatsoever, as if everything in the universe is touching everything else in the universe. Well, if you think of it as information, then what we call reality is an information architecture. It's a structure that was created by consciousness. So so exactly how that worked, we don't know. What we can say is that the experimental evidence, and again, I'm an experimentalist, so I'm not a theoretician or a philosopher, so everything I say is based on experimental evidence. And what we can say is that it appears that all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent, and that we live in a matrix of consciousness, which we can alter by collective intention or individual intention in certain cases. I mean, people affecting, for instance, random number generators or healing. Uh, You cited that bunny thing earlier. There's, for instance, in healing, there's a very interesting experiment done by a woman named Jean Ochterberg, now dead, unfortunately. And Jean was working with Kahuna priests in Hawaii, and she had them send healing to people who were in MRIs, who were getting their brains scanned by MRIs. And the healers only sent healing when a light went on uh, that was controlled by a random number generator, so nobody knew when it was going to happen. And what she discovered and reported on was that when the people were expressing healing intention, then and only then, the brains of the people who were in the MRIs altered performance. So there's some kind of linkage that's going on, and it's not a space-time linkage. That's one thing. The other thing that is important to look at is um, a researcher in Israel, Leonard Leibovici, who didn't like therapeutic intention, which is what we in science call healing. He didn't like therapeutic intention, just didn't like the concept of it. So he tried to do an experiment that would make it go away. And the experiment, which is a very clever experiment, he went to the computer at the Beth Israel Hospital in, in Israel, and he asked the computer network to give him the first names and the initial of the surname of people who had contracted a particular kind of iatrogenic blood disease when they were in the hospital. And the the time dates that he gave were four to ten years in the past, right? So he's getting people to hold people in therapeutic intention four to ten years earlier. And, of course, they know nothing about this and were all of them out of the hospital long ago, right? So he got a group of healers, and the only thing he gave them was the first name and the initial of the surname, and he said, I want you to hold these people in healing intention. So they did for two weeks. And then he went to the computer, and he asked the computer to give him the medical records. There was a, this was a very large group of people, 3,928, I think is the right number. But in any case, quite a large number, and he split them into two populations. The control population, they didn't get anything, and the treated population, which were the people who were the targets for the healers. And when he looked at the research data that had been accumulated in their medical records, what he discovered was that those people who had been the target of healing four to ten years after they had been out of the hospital had very different medical records 
than the people that were the controls. And so what is that telling us? That's telling us that you cannot change the past, but you can go back into the past when it is the present and occurring for the first time, providing you don't know the outcome, and you can change it. Another experiment that demonstrates this is an experiment by a man named Helmut Schmidt. Helmut took a nuclear isotope and surrounded it with um, receptors, little little uh, chips that would record the data. Every time the, the nuclear isotope emitted a particle, it would hit one of these little chips and would be recorded as a ping. So he ran this thing for six months. So he's got six months of data, right? Every once in a while, the nuclear isotope lets off a thing, and it goes ping, uh, is recorded as a ping. And then he waited six months. Now we're a year later. He recorded the data on five chips, and he gave four of the chips to friends, and he said, just put this in the desk and forget about it. And he retained one, and he brought in people. Let's say it was you, Michael. And he would say to you, Michael, I'm going to play a tape that has, you're going to hear little pings. And your task is to make more pings or less pings, and let's go to the computer, and randomly it'll select more pings or less pings, unless for the sake of the illustration we'll say more pings. And so he would say to you, Michael, put these headphones on, and you're going to hear these pings, and your job is to make more pings occur. And he discovered people could do it, or less pings that they could do it. Now, remember, this was all recorded a year ago. Simply by holding the intention. By holding intention. So then he asked the next question, very important. He got a fish tank. On the inside of the fish tank, he put a a tape that had electronic out little, like little needles. And when the pings occurred, it would cause a, a little electronic pulse to go into the water of the fish tank. And he put a fish in the fish tank. And he put that in a, in a closet with all the things that the fish needed and a video camera. And he recorded for six months again what the fish was doing when these pings were being played. And then he asked people to do it using that same chip and they could no longer do it. So what do we learn from that? And that is that when the information interacted with any consciousness, in this case a fish, that once it had been interacted and was known, you couldn't change it. So when we look at all of this data, what it looks like is that we are looking at an information phenomena and that what we call reality is kind of like a video game. And we're kind of like the avatars that you would have in a video game where you're limited by the construct of the video game or or reality in this case, what we call three-dimensional reality, that you're limited by the operational rules of that reality, but that underlying all of that is the idea of consciousness and that consciousness can be altered through intention. In fact, the three things that are really important that we've learned out of the research is that intention is the key and that the key to expressing that intention is the ability to attain and sustain 
intention-focused awareness. That's why they teach meditation in martial art dojos, in Tibetan lamasaries, in Roman Catholic seminaries, and they teach meditation because meditation gives you the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness. And when you can do that, then the sensory noise, the it's too hot, it's too cold, uh, it's windy, it's not windy, all that sense impression stuff that comes through our neuroanatomy retreats into the background. You know this as a meditator, and instead you are focused on the intention that you're holding, and you may be focused on a mantra or an affirmation or whatever, but you're using that to create this focus. And when you create the focus, then you can access what in religion they call the still small voice. This is the non-local aspect of consciousness. Because the other important thing that comes out of all this is the continuity of consciousness. That is, consciousness exists prior to physical incarnation and continues after physical incarnation ends. And so what we're dealing with is a domain, for want of a better term. I don't really have the right term because they all sound spatial and they're not. We have this informational architecture, which we call reality, but that underlying it is this other domain, which is the domain of consciousness. And you can see that how this plays out. For instance, if you look at people who are creative geniuses, who have moments of great genius that change you know, history, the Einsteins, the Descartes, the Poincares, that sort of thing, or you look at people who are having spiritual epiphanies where there's, or you look at someone who's a remote viewer who's describing a teapot in a closet somewhere on the other side of the earth. What you, what you suddenly see when they describe what their sensations are, what their experience is like, is that they are all describing exactly the same thing about accessing non-local consciousness and it's guided by the intention, the context. So a scientist is trying to see how something works in the natural order of things. A, a spiritual pilgrim is trying to have a transcendental experience. And the remote viewer is describing the teacup. But they're all doing and accessing the same thing, this non-local aspect of consciousness. Stefan, we often hear from Eastern philosophy and Western research that a concept like karma, for example, is the result of deeds. What I hear you saying is it's not the deed. It's not even the thought that led to the behavior. It's the intention behind the thought, which is behind the behavior, that is the magnetic driving force in all of this. So, I mean, the implications are overwhelming, but at the very least, it frees us from the guilt and the shame of making mistakes. We can say to ourselves, well, but what was my intention when we decide whether we're a good person, whether we're selfish and self-centered or working for the greater good of all? What was my intention? Was my intention good? Was my intention clear? And that that's really the magnetism or the plasticity in all of this. 
Yeah, I mean, I would I would nuance that a little bit, but yeah, I mean, it's what's clear is that the information architecture that we call reality is manipulated by consciousness with intention, and that those things which produce well-being are preferable to things that don't produce well-being. To give you an example, Mahatma Gandhi got independence for India without a war. I mean, think about that for a minute. I mean, it's the only example I can think of where a a man got an enormous country, not just some little tiny principality, but a continent, got independence. And a reporter, right before he was assassinated, a reporter went up to Gandhi and said to him, how did you force the British to leave India? And Gandhi's answer illustrates the point you're making. It was the nature of our character, our beingness, that led the British to choose to leave India. So when you think about that for a minute, you realize that there is no force on earth more powerful than the collective intention of a group of people. Stephen, you never fail to disappoint me in all the years we've done interviews. I I have to confess, I wish I had you on speed dial. Let's do this again. And I only wish that we had more time today. How can people find out more about your books, any special events you have? Okay, well, here are <laughs> here are all the things. I publish a daily web publication on trends that are affecting the future. That's www.schwartzreport.net, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.net, schwartzreport.net. You can go to my personal website, which is Stephan A. Schwartz, S-T-E-P-H-A-N, middle initial A, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, dot com, stephanaschwartz.com. You can go to YouTube, search on my name. If you go to Amazon and search on my name, you'll get all my books. I am about fostering well-being, and I invite everybody to join me in that because that is the successful path to the future. Stefan, thank you, thank you, thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Michael. You take care. Stefan Schwartz, my guest on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And stay tuned. We're going to have more about the fun drive in just a minute. You're listening to KPFK. I'm Manuel Zuberi-Fields, KPFK's general manager. Our winter fun drive is in full swing now. The Fun Drive is a time we come to our listeners to celebrate our accomplishments and impacts KPFK has had in your life and the communities we serve. Without the financial support of our listeners like you, KPFK would not be able to air the programs you love and rely upon. When you give to KPFK, you're investing in your local community. Your contribution makes programs like Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott, Rising Up with Sonali, Something's Happening with Roy of Hollywood, Background Briefing with Ian Masters, and the 6 o'clock news possible. Keep your favorite programs on the air and the support staff behind the scenes working for you and your community. Your support now helps us end our drive as soon as possible and reduce the interruptions to your favorite program. Call 818-985-5735 or better yet, donate online now at kpfk.org slash donate.
This program, The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, is brought to you by KPFK as a listener-sponsored nonprofit radio station. That means your contributions, your donations are tax-deductible. But moreover, they're essential to keeping the radio station on the air. This is a very critical time. I'm sure you've heard other hosts say as much. We took a big hit in 2008 when the economy collapsed. We've had a series of financial problems that have required us to mortgage the building. We are in debt beyond your ability to imagine. And yet we're committed not only to surviving, but to raising this radio station to the highest standards ever. At a time when the existence of a radio station committed to peace and social justice has never been more critical, more essential. Now you can call the phone room or make a pledge online. We have women and men in the phone room right now, happy to take your phone call, 818-985-KPFK. I'll spell that out for you, 818-985-5735. Your donation in any amount is appreciated, of course. And if you'd rather use the website, point your browser to kpfk.org. kpfk.org slash donate or just kpfk.org and click on the banner where it says support KPFK. The phone room number again, 818-985-5735. And before you call or go online, I'd like you to consider how much you'd like to donate. If you're fortunate enough to still be working or maybe you're retired and living fairly comfortably, I want you to think in terms of 1% of your annual income. Let's say uh, in an area like Los Angeles, that might be $50,000. I know many of you do not make nearly that much, but I also know that there are many, many people listening right now who make way more than fifty k. Let's just say, as an average, $50,000 a year. A contribution of KPFK of $500 is 1%. Or if you contributed just one quarter of 1% of that annual income, that would be $125. So 100 to $150, that to me is the bullseye of the target. That's the center. Now, we have people donating $1,000 and more. We've received some really generous contributions on this radio program in the past. We used to call it In Revision, and Nita Valen still does a show on Fridays at one called In Revision. After a 12-year hiatus, I've brought this program back as the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. But like In Revision and The Aware Show with Lisa Gar, these are programs that are about spirituality, about psychology and philosophy, about developing our potential and aspiring to be the best possible women and men that we can be. You know, this is a very diverse radio station. There are political programs and ethnocentric and culturally sensitive programming and music from around the world. But one thing we all have in common is a progressive agenda. What does that mean? It means we embrace diversity. 
We love each other. We're a family. We're a community. Think of the word community. It means with unity, with harmony. Maybe that's a better word, harmony, since we need not all agree on everything in order to harmonize our opinions about the directions we need to move in. Peace and social justice for everyone. This programming is not available anywhere else. NPR and PBS may often nod in this direction, but only KPFK is completely committed to the progressive agenda. And presumably that's why you're listening. And that's why we're asking you to pick up the phone and call now, 818-985-5735, and make that pledge of $100, $150, or more. There are some really nice premiums you can ask about, but as I said at the top of the show, I'd rather you do it without even interest in what premiums you might get, what perks you could receive as a thank you. You're welcome to them, but if you can save us the postage and the cost of the item, then you maximize your contribution. It means so much more to us. It helps us to a much greater degree, you see. And I want you to think about the interview you just heard with Stefan Schwartz and what he was saying about the revolution in India led by Mahatma Gandhi and that Gandhi and the impoverished masses led a nonviolent revolution that didn't force the British to leave so much as to make it impossible for them to stay. Because the power of their consciousness, what Gandhi called their beingness, was greater than bombs and guns and hot lead ripping through their flesh. There were many people who were part of that revolution in India who went to Gandhi and pleaded with him, saying, they're massacring us, they're shooting people down, protesters who are unarmed, who are nonviolent, we have to pick up weapons and fight back. And Gandhi said, no, we don't want to kill the British, we just want them to leave. And they did. That's the power of intention, concentrated intention, of love and vision, as Stefan Schwartz described it, and is proven now by empirical research. Quantum physics is saying that what the mystics have said from time out of mind is true, that thoughts and passions and more directly the intention behind them when focused when cared about deeply, when believed in strongly, make a difference in the world. Whether it's in the way that caring about someone who's ill can help them rally their immune system and fight that disease, even at a distance, or waging a peaceful, nonviolent revolution that forces an occupying nation to just leave. We can see the reverse of this in the QAnon phenomena, where reality is actually being distorted by a passion for falsehoods, for lies, for conspiracies based on what is not known, 
belief systems based not on evidence or proof or verifiable factual information, but based on what people feel should be true. Ten years ago, Stephen Colbert coined the term truthiness and defined it as meaning something that's true because it feels like it ought to be. Bill Maher does a similar thing, a little bit that he does every few weeks, called, I don't know it's true, but it feels like it ought to be. Well, that's what's happened to the right in America. They're willing to believe in something they want to believe in so strongly that they create a reality like an insurrection, a seditious attempt to overthrow democracy, to wave a flag and claim to be a patriot at the same time they use the pole the flag is mounted on to beat Capitol Police. 140 Capitol Police men and women injured, several knocked unconscious, one killed, two more having committed suicide since, not to mention scores of other injuries. And for what? For a conspiracy theory? This is anybody who disagrees with the Trump base is a satanic-worshipping pedophile working in step with lizard people directing space lasers at California? I mean, it's beyond belief, and yet those who believe it are distorting reality like a funhouse mirror. Reality is plastic. It is malleable. Reality can be shaped, it can be changed. And the question is, in what way? Well, I'd like to think that because you're listening to this radio station, you've already chosen the direction, which is to redeem ignorance and evil and wickedness and racism, xenophobia, misogyny, and bigotry in general into something loving and kind, humble, harmonious, and wise. And that's a golden thread that runs through the programming at this radio station 24-7. So won't you support us in any way that you can? Ask about the Sustainer's Circle, where $5, $25, $50 a month can be drawn automatically out of your ATM credit debit account. It's painless. You don't even know it's happening yet at the end of the year. Oh yeah, I've got that big tax deduction for the money that I contributed to the KPFK mission, a nonprofit charity, 501c3. Not to mention the comfort and sense of fulfillment and belonging that comes from knowing that you're supporting this great mission. Help us out. Every time you turn on KPFK, you'll feel better than ever about being part of the community that together we serve. To wire, fire, and inspire this radio station, the state of California, the United States of America, and the world. Help us make it a better place for everyone inclusively, to the exclusion of no one. That's what democracy, in America in particular, is really all about. That's the Bill of Rights in a nutshell. 
818-985-5735. Thanks for being with us. Join us next week for the Mystery School, Tuesdays at 1 o'clock. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Bennett.